Hi all, very sad that I can't be there in person with you, but uh, glad that we can use technology and that you're able to at least get the video version of me, which is maybe more interesting than the real me. I guess I'll leave that to you to figure out. Well, we're in our second week of Advent here, and we're looking at John's prologue to his gospel, these first 18 verses. And what are the things that John's talking about here, or at least, that at least he wants to get us to think about? Or maybe some takeaway for us to think about as we get into this, is this big idea of what you believe will determine what you do. If you believe that happiness is ultimately found somewhere, you're, you're going to chase it. So if happy, happiness is ultimately found in comforts that you can buy, like a house or like that retirement or whatever the thing might be, then you're going to have a focus on money and your career. That's just your, That belief will determine how you live. You'll work hard because you have that belief. Now, if you believe that your next promotion is what's going to kind of make you know, everything work for you, uh, even just for a little while, you're going to put your energy towards that next promotion or substitute promotion for a graduation, for a house move, for having children, for getting a partner, whatever the thing might be. Now, these are all kind of big kinds of beliefs, right? Having kids or a career, all those kinds. Those are big kinds of beliefs. Um, and the opposite process works well, works as well. The way to tell what someone believes in is through looking at what they do. How we live our lives is a reflection for us to tell us what we actually believe in. What takes priority in the diary? What takes priority from, uh, from our wallets? If you can see where your time and your money goes, that'll tell you what you actually believe in. And maybe you didn't, don't realize it, but if you actually look, like, what am I working towards? Well, I'm working towards this thing. That means, functionally, what I believe is that thing over here. So we say we have some big beliefs, but just saying that we have a belief doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it true. Someone can say they follow Jesus, but if their life is indiscernible to those who don't, then there ought to be a bit of a question mark at the least. Now that brings us to the reason that John is writing. We talked about this last week, and our author here, John, knows that what you believe will determine in how you live. And, and John knew Jesus. He was one of the three apostles who were closest to Jesus, and he wants others to be close to him as well. And John is upfront about why he's writing. In verses 6 and 7, in, in chapter 1, he's basically, uh, he's basically saying, Hey, I'm John. Nice to meet you. I'm not the light, but I'm a witness to the light, and I'm writing so that through my account, all people from all kinds of backgrounds will be able to believe in Jesus. So John wants us today, those who are present and those who, who aren't present, he wants us to believe, and that's why he's writing his gospel. A gospel is like a biography of Jesus. That's why he's writing this gospel. John is calling for us to believe in Jesus as taught in the Bible as taught from his own eyewitness account, the real Jesus, the Jesus who came from Nazareth, not the Jesus who comes from our thoughts or our ideas, the real Jesus from Nazareth. And through what he's writing here, John wants us to believe that Jesus is the true light, that he's the true light, and that we might believe in him. And as we just talked about kind of having beliefs and having kind of the way we live kind of uh, fit into those beliefs, all of us are subject to chasing after all kinds of lights. Like if you've had a cat, if you've ever had a cat or had a friend who's had a cat, you have a laser pointer and there's good times, right? You just point that laser wherever and the cat's running all over the place. Uh, you have them run around, you get going all circles. It's amazing. It's hilarious. 
the same was true with our dog. Uh, you'd take a torch out and he'd just chase the light wherever you put it. It was hilarious. It was great. I'm very amused by simple things. Now, this is just like us, though. We're really simple creatures when it comes to that kind of stuff. What we believe in determines how we live. What lights are we chasing? Are we going around in circles? Or does it seem like there's so many lights out there we're just flitting from one thing to the next and never actually going anywhere? What we believe in determines how we live, and how we live shows kind of what we believe in. Both of those things are true. Now, Jesus, the true light, has come so that we can be freed from running around in circles, so that we can be freed from flitting around to this thing and that thing, so we can be freed from, from uh, kind of focusing on lesser things and focus on the big thing, focus on the true light, the big thing that actually matters, that's worth pouring our lives into, that's worth organizing our lives around. One that's focused on Him, and one where we get to be God's children. That's what John wants us to believe in. The true light that we want, He wants us to believe in, the true light, one where we get to be His children. And in these first few verses, verses 6 and 7, John tells uh, us about himself, but then in verses 9 and following, he tells us about Jesus, this true light. And then he tells us how this true light leads us to a new status, and then he tells us how this true light leads us to a new birth. So the first thing we're going to look at in verse nine, verses 9 through 11 is Jesus, the true light. And true here means genuine, means authentic, means real, means trustworthy. It starts uh, there in, in verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So this true light thing, trustworthy, I think is actually a really good word for, for true. And trustworthy itself is kind of, it's an interesting word. It means something is worthy of your trust. Something has worth in itself for you to put your trust in. Not something that's clamoring for your trust, not something that's maybe a little bit dodgy and, and not really worth your trust. Not quite the real thing. Jesus, though, is worth your trust. He is the real thing. He's the true light. And this true light isn't just for like a select group of people. It's not for the goodies. It's not for the religious. It's not for the heteronormative. It's for all these people, yeah, and everyone else. It's for everyone. John's trying to let us know this is for everyone. People who are religious, people who are irreligious, people who are anti-religion. Or people who've never really thought about religion. It's for people who feel comfortable in a church and those who feel comfortable in a pub. It's for ex-cons. It's for stay-at-home moms. It's for people who have a skin color like me and for every other shade that God has created. To all, for all, Jesus is worthy of your trust the true light. And where was this light? Where was it? Was it distant? Was it far off? Was it kind of cool and removed? Was it self-righteous? No. He was in the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and we talked about that last week, but he didn't remain distant from his creation. He was in it. He was as in it as anyone could have been. Uh, more than in it, look, look how John uh, writes about this in verse 11. He says, He came to that which was his own. He didn't just linger in the back of the room. He came to us. And, and how does Jesus view us? His own. We are his own. We are his creation. He has a level of ownership 
over us, over all humanity. He loves all of us with a love that is near. He's not cool. He's not far off. He's not one foot in and one foot out. He's all in. In fact, nobody has ever been all in in the way that Jesus has been all in. He is all in for you. And Jesus being the true light means he's worthy of your trust. He's for everyone and he's with us. The true light is trustworthy. The true light is for everyone. And the true light is all in for us. But then John tells us how people responded. How did they respond? And not only then, but how do people respond now? Initially, he's not recognized. He's not received. People don't recognize him as the true light. People don't recognize him as worthy of trust. And even though he's all in, other people don't receive him. Like, they decline that dinner invitation. And in doing so, they miss out on the true light, and they're taken in by all the lesser things, all things that really are not actually worthy of our time and our effort and our energy. The true light has come into this world, and people miss out. John's honest from that in the beginning. We haven't even really gotten to halfway through chapter 1, and he's saying people are, miss out on him. Now look, here's the thing. Anyone can get in on this thing. Anyone can get in on what Jesus has to offer them. It's for everyone. It's for anyone. Jesus is the light for all. And that doesn't mean that everyone will believe in him, but it does mean that everyone can. So regardless of where you think you're coming from, regardless of whatever you brought into this room today or wherever, if you're watching online today, regardless of wherever you are, Jesus is all in for you. So I want you to know that. More than that, John wants you to know that. Now, these verses don't really talk about how we change as we follow the light. Uh, it doesn't talk about what that process looks like of, of that love coming into our lives and changing us. It doesn't talk about what growth is. What these verses are, are a scandalous and shocking description of how God has broken into our broken world. It's shocking. It's shocking. And part of the shock is that we miss him completely. Let me change gears. I want to talk about Tony Hawk for a moment. Now, if you don't know who Tony Hawk is, he's probably the most famous skateboarder ever. And you'd be okay to not know that. That's cool. Uh, he's a big deal in the skateboard world. He's a big deal in the business world. He's just kind of like a big deal in general. And one of the things I love about Tony Hawk, who's this kind of famous, or at least for most people, semi-famous kind of guy, is he loves to tweet when people say that he looks like Tony Hawk. Let's have a look at some of these uh, tweets from Tony Hawk. This first one, and often these are go through airports, this first one is a TSA agent staring intently at him, and he says, I'm trying to figure out who you look like before checking your ID. Tony Hawk says, okay. The agent says, that cyclist Armstrong, a nearby TSA agent, that ain't Lance Armstrong. Tony Hawk says, he's right. Agent, oh, you look like that skateboarder, checks ID. Same last name too, crazy. Tony Hawk. Crazy. Here's number two. This is a fun one. Dude at a gas station in Iowa, so in the middle of, of America. Anyone ever tell you you look like a young Tony Hawk? He is my new favorite person. And third, this is my fave of all time. The TSA agent, again, in the airport, checking his ID. Hawk, like that skateboarder, Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk says, exactly. Her, her. cool, I wonder what he's up to these days. This. People see him. 
They don't recognize him. They don't realize who he is, and they miss out on him completely. Again, anyone can get in on this. How many times have I heard to this effect? I can't, something to this effect, I can't walk in a church, I'm going to burst into flames. As if somehow, you know, like a church building is like more holy or something. Well, I normally cheekily respond and say, well, don't worry, we don't, we don't meet in a church building, we meet in a pub. And they're like, oh, oh, interesting. Now, if God is for everyone, if the true light is there for all kinds of people, if he came to his creation, to his own, that means it's for people who look good and bad on the outside. Because we all know that we don't look great on the inside. And these are all ways to miss out on the true life, the true light. We are like the public when it comes to Tony Hawk. We don't recognize Jesus, we don't receive him, and we miss out because of that. If you follow Jesus, you can think this too. You can think, oh, I'm, I, maybe, I, maybe I'm not good enough. Like, I'm not good enough to come to him. I need to doubt less before I pray. Or I need to sort myself out before I come to God. Or I have to say sorry again. Ugh, I bet she's sick of me. Those are all lies from hell. Send them back to hell where they came from. All of those are lies that stop you from realizing and recognizing and enjoying the fact that Jesus is is the true light. Jesus loves to love you. He loves to do that. That's one of his favorite things. He loves to be the light for you. How silly that we would chase after anything else. He enjoys it. And it's great for us because it's what we're made for. And everything else, as good as other things might be, and they can be good and they can be worth some of our trust. Everything else is not worth like, our ultimate kind of trust, our ultimate priority. It's this concept of, of Western supremacy. You've heard me, I'm sure, say that word in the past if you've been around Redeemer. It's this idea that consumerism will save us and technology will be our hope to fix all of our problems. That, that a good job, that a good house, and a semi-happy family as it w is worth it as long as I get to you know, drink a little bit on the weekends. But that is not worth your trust. There's a better way to live than that. And yet all of us swim in that water. We all have this idea in the back of our heads. Setting up a good little comfortable life here on earth is really what's going to make us happy. What do we give our attention to? What do we give our thoughts to? What do we worry about? What are we anxious about? What keeps us awake at night? Is the reality of the true light in the world coming to his own, does that affect you at all? Or are you kind of ho-hum about that cosmic insanity? No. It's often far less than that. Our thoughts are far less than that. Wherever you are with Jesus, everyone here, myself included, we all need and we all can stand to believe more in him in the various parts of our lives. There are parts of ourselves that we hold back. We all know this. And maybe you've never shared what those parts are in your life with somebody. But, but God knows, and you know. God knows it better than you do. There are parts of ourselves that we hold back. But if Jesus is the true light, holding back, it's not good for us. It's not good for other people that we're called to love. It's not good for our church. It's not good for our community. What Manchester needs are communities of light of people taken in by the true light, all stumbling towards faith together as we believe more each day. And how can you tell if you believe it? Show me how you live. 
Show me how you live, I'll tell you what you believe in. Now for those who do recognize Jesus and believe in him, this true light leads to a new status. And look what it says here. Uh, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, in verse 12, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So to receive him is to believe him. To all did receive him, to those who believed in his name, there's like synonymous words in here. And to believe in him is to trust him. To trust the Jesus of the Bible, right? Not the Jesus of, of what we think Jesus ought to be, but the Jesus as written in the Bible. So we might see only tragedy if this true light was never recognized, as John says. But it's not just tragedy. There's something else for those who believe. There's a giving. There's a gift that comes from God, and it's this, the right to become children of God. He doesn't say automatically that we become children of God. It's is very interesting. He says that there, we've been given the right to become children of God. Of course, that we do become children of God, but there's, there's a different in, difference in status here. That's what that word right gets to. It's something like a status. The right to become means a change in status from one state to another state. And in chapter 5 of John's biography of Jesus here, John, in John 5, 24, John will write this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. A change of status from death to life. This is what this idea of the right to become children of, of God is, that right. It's not the right to be better than other people. It's not the right that proves you're good or something like that. It's a change of status, like from being dead to being alive, given by God to people who didn't work for it. Because if you were given something as a gift, you didn't earn it, it was given to you. You were passive in it. You just receive it. And how is this new status defined? Not really as anything terribly impressive. Jesus has, has come into the world so that we would get this new status. What's this change in status? To become children. To become children of God. Notice it's not to become a child individually. But it's to become children together. If you believe in Jesus, you get to be family with each other and with God. That's what we get. And I love, I really do, I, I love that John writes children here. You know why? Because to be a child means nobody is expecting you to have it all together. Nobody is expecting you to know everything. Nobody is expecting you to be successful, to be always winning. You're a kid, right? Children are expected to be needy. They're expected to learn. They're expected to, to grow. Children know that they're needy. Children get to be themselves. At some point, as we grow up and grow out of this childlike aspect of our lives, we buy into this horrible idea that we must be self-sufficient and not rely on other people and really not rely on God. Children are messy and they're noisy. And you know what? That's how it should be. That is the wonderful, lofty status that Jesus gives us. The fact that we get to be God's messy, noisy kids. That's so good. Another reason... I love that we get to be children, is that children have fun. Whenever there is a funny joke, they always want more. You, you tell a kid something funny or you do something funny, you know what they immediately say? Again. And then you do it, and they immediately say, 
again. And they do it again and again and again. And as adults, we tire of it. We can't, we're like kind of, we're over it already. But kids love it. They have a capacity for love, a capacity for fun, and a capacity for wonder that we kind of, we tend to grow out of as we grow up. Adults cannot handle the amount of joy and wonder that kids have on a normal basis. For a child, this world that we live in, it's filled with wonder, and over time we kind of get ground down and get used to it and become a bit blasé or even cynical, and we miss out on all the good things God's given us. And Jesus saves us from that sad way of living and elevates us to this new status. He elevates us to be a child, to be, to be children. And for all who believe in Jesus, we get to be part of God's family. And that high and lofty status means we get to be messy and we get to have fun. And that's what a gospel-formed family means. Messy and fun. That's what Jesus has saved us to. Part of the reason for our salvation is to be messy, noisy, needy kids who have fun and are, have these lives full of wonder. That means death is an image of having it all together and being robbed of joy. If we've been saved from death to life, like that's the status change, we've been saved from not being children of God to now being children of God. N not being a children of God is being saved from death. So Jesus saved us from death to life, and the death that he saves people from is from that image of having it all together, of, of having it all together, of that, of trying to keep up that image, uh, and also in that, that's a joyless kind of life. Because you're always working to keep it up, and it's not enjoyable, it's not, it's not fun, it's work. Do you feel like you have to have that image turned on? Especially around church, I'm sure you do. I mean, do you know others who do? Have you lost that wonder that God has injected into this world? What about other people that you love? Have they lost that wonder? Wouldn't it be great for you to kind of rediscover that? Wouldn't it be great for, for them to rediscover that? The way to do it is to believe in Jesus. That's the way to do it. Believe in Jesus, who brings us out of death and into life. And when I say death, I'm not just talking about the final death, although yes, that's true too, but all those little tiny deaths we experience in our lives, all of those things, Jesus has brought us out. All the parts that you hold back, maybe nobody else knows about, Jesus does. And he wants you to fully embrace all of what it means to be God's children. And maybe you've uh, never considered being one of God's children before. Maybe you've missed this true light and maybe thus far in your life. Well, he is for everyone and he elevates anyone who believes in him to that high and lofty status of being children of God. So we've had that true light that leads to a new status and also leads to a new birth. So if we are different kind of children, if we are children of God, how do we get to be this? Now, first off, John talks about how it doesn't work. He says it doesn't work through natural descent. And I think when talking about natural descent, I think there's two specific things that John is trying to get at here, or at the very least, there's two takeaways for us. The way that God worked in the Old Testament, especially the way people interpreted how God worked in the Old Testament, had a big, big focus on lineage, who your parents were, were who you were. And to some extent, you could rely on that lineage for your faith. 
not so in the new way that God works once Jesus came to earth. Then there's also this idea of class hierarchy. Outside of religious Jewish circles, class was very important. And of course, we know that's important in our culture today as well. Identity came from and still comes from our class background. And our class background comes from who you were born to. That's a natural descent kind of thing. So whether one is relying on their own background for their spiritual life or for their standing and status in general, this new way of living, of believing in Jesus, it comes from from a different place. It doesn't come through parents. doesn't come through pedigree. doesn't come from a certain type of accent. It doesn't come from any of that. This new birth also doesn't come from human decision. That means it doesn't come from us. It's not about having a superior mind. It's not about having a superior morality. It's not about having superior actions or some kind of superior passion in life. Now, all those things can be good, but none of them are where this new birth comes from. This is why Christianity is is something different than a be better, try harder, that kind of culture. That's Western supremacy stuff. And that burns people out, sucks the life and joy out of people, and it burns people out. We can never try hard enough or do enough good things to bring about a new life in ourselves, let alone other people, let alone in our world, right? Now, sometimes conservative evangelicals, even those with kind of mission mindsets, can fall into this. If they think, if if we just think harder, if we just try harder, then something great is going to happen. And now, I'm all about working hard. And I'm all about uh, using our brains and being intellectual about our faith. But if that's where we th- think something great comes from, particularly like primarily comes from, well, that's just the Christianized version of how everyone else lives. I'm not here for that. And I hope you're not either. We're here for something better. Now, the last thing that this doesn't come from is a husband's will. Uh, so during the time of writing this, like first of all, like, huh? Where'd that come from? A little bit of background might help. During the time of writing this, if you were a married woman, you had to worship whatever gods your husband worshipped. And it wasn't like a one-hour-a-week thing, because religious worship in the Roman Empire was tri- tied directly to your social calendar. Feasts, celebrations, dinners, their friends, they were as much social as they were religious. And you, as a married woman, didn't have a say in the matter. As you can see, this would cause problems for women who wanted to follow Jesus instead of following what other places that their husband was going to. And John is saying that women ought to be free to worship who they want, not under the thumb of any man of, of any sort. And maybe one of the takeaways for us today could be that those who are in lower positions of power, whether socially or whatever, as women were then, are often subject to to those who are in power. The world is organized in such a way where the powerful stay powerful, and they don't often use their power for the good of those who need it. And what John is writing here is saying that not so in this new birth. Not so in this new birth. This new birth doesn't follow in the ways of this world. In fact, this new birth is organized in such a way where it is in direct conflict with the ways of this world. Okay, so it's not up to our background, it's not up to us, and it's not up to others we love or those who are in power. Right at the very end, John tells us what it does mean. He said at the the end of verse 13, he says, uh, Children born out of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
we get to be children of God because we're born of God. If you've heard the expression born-again Christian, that's what's meant here. This is one of the places in the Bible where it talks about it. People whom Jesus has changed from death to life. Already physically born, now spiritually born into a new life. And this, of course, makes sense when you think about it. Because the only way to be God's children is to be born of Him. A child doesn't born themselves or do the borning themselves. They don't get born. They are born. It's a passive thing. Not of human decision, not natural descent, not of a husband's will. Being born is what gets done to us by God, not by other people, not by other humans, but by God. Not from our power, but His. He is God, after all. And He, only He, has the power to rebirth us. That's the radical change that's needed. We need to be rebirthed. It's in God's power, not ours. So that means we get to be relieved from living, or we get to be relieved from having to renew ourselves. Because it's God's power in us. We don't renew ourselves. God renews us. We get to be relieved from running in circles. God gives us a new life that allows us to live in a new way. And what you believe will determine how you live. If you believe that Jesus is the true light, your life is going to be different. To the extent that your life is not different, that might give an indication of parts of you that still shrink back from belief. But what does it mean when we believe? Is Jesus like, is he worth our trust? Is he actually trustworthy? I think that's really the big question, isn't it? Because if he is, that's great. But how can we tell and, 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 and how do we know? Well, Jesus is worth our trust because he wasn't just in this world. He's worth our trust because he didn't just come to us. He's worth our trust because he lived and he breathed and he worked not only to live here, not only to come to us, but to bless us, to heal us, to, to renew our spirit. And he continued to do that, to be the pathway in order to be rebirthed by God, by himself. He's worth our trust because in order for us to be born of him, he had to die. He's worth our trust because he didn't stay dead, but raised himself back to life. He's worth our trust because he didn't keep this new life for himself, but through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he became the true light. And this true light is always on, always giving, always lighting more lights, and more lights, and more lights, and more lights. And when the light is on, the world is different. And that's what we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. See, the true light came on, never switched off, never will switch off, and the world is now different because of it. And just like a child asking for another drink, or another snack, we come to the Lord hungry and thirsty, and He gives us what we need. So for all who are needy and noisy and who walk in wonder of Jesus, this meal is for us. And if you aren't yet bored of God, this isn't for you, so please don't take this meal along with us. But no, this is for everyone and anyone who, who receives Him and believes in Him, so anyone can get in on this. And through Jesus, the true light, we're given a new status, and are given a new birth. Now in a moment I'm going to pray, but just to let you guys know how we do, uh, if you haven't done this before, how we typically do the Lord's Supper here at Redeemer is we eat and drink 
while we sing songs together because we want to make it celebratory. We want to have, I mean, as much as we can on a Sunday morning, a bit of a party atmosphere. And so as we eat and drink, know that the wafer is a symbol of Christ's body. Died so that we might have new birth. And the juice is a symbol of Christ's blood. Poured out so that the true light may never go out in our hearts. And that's what we get to do together. Now, if you believe Jesus, please join in with us. If you don't believe in Jesus yet, you don't have to. And in fact, we would rather you not to. But if, 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 if you don't believe in Jesus yet, and maybe something in here, you say, yeah, I, think, I think he's worth my trust. Why not today? Why not today? You can take, and, and if you do, if you do take that along with us, uh, please talk to somebody about it, because we're children. We're not child of God. We're children of God. We do this, do this kind of stuff together. So let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the true light. We thank you that oh, it's not up to us to find the best light out there, and uh, or is this the best light out there, or is this what, Lord, you have made it clear. You have come in, in human form, walked on this earth, spoke words, and those words were written down so that we can even read them today. Lord, you have made yourself clear, and we thank you for that. That is a grace. You didn't need to, but you wanted to because you love us and you want us to know you. So Lord, in that clarity, we give our lives to you. We are sorry for the areas that we hold back and we know we're not gonna be completely fixed by the end of this prayer, but Lord, we pray that you'll continue to grow us, continue to mold us more into your image, continue to help us keep believing in you and also for the parts of us that hold back that belief, Lord, pray that you work on us that we might change. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.